This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hey, hey, welcome. Disability Law Show. So good to be back here uh, with you. I hope you enjoy the following hour. There's lots of interesting information. A lot of it is education. If you're dealing with a long-term disability insurer, if you've been cut off, told you're being cut off, or have been, been asked to appeal a cutoff, these are all very uh, disturbing things for those who are not in the know when it comes to your rights and uh, your entitlements when it comes to disability law and dealing with said insurer. But don't worry, the David and Goliath uh, scenario is easily quenched. We can get rid of that and deal with it uh, quickly. With the help of Tamara Gopian, our resident expert here and partner, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always ready to answer your questions, whether it's here on the show or otherwise. Reaching out, simple, one 855 help at ca. That's an email address. There is a free and anonymous website called mydisabilityquestions.com. This was put together for the sole purpose of letting you ask questions online and get them answered. It is also searchable, so your question or one very similar to it, if not exactly like it, may have been asked and, uh, and asked in the past, so you can search for that and see if you get the right answer. If not, you can always use uh, use your keyboard and type in your question, mydisabilityquestions.com, and then you may have other questions about LTD. Really simple to use. It's like Lego. It's short form. It's called ltdfaq.ca, a series of memos for you to read and educate yourself. There's, there's so many different ways you can educate yourself through this show, but we'll get to more of those on the way. Uh, lots of emails already coming in. Lorna, Charlie, we'll get to you guys, but uh, Tamar, good to have you back, pal, but you always have something interesting to to kick off the show with what do you got this week thanks john it was an interesting week i got an interesting call this week and you said you know tomorrow an expert at disability law and guess what i got got a call from another lawyer this week asking me in fact to be an expert witness for a claim that he's got ongoing to talk about disability policies and so i thought i'd start off the show because it was sort of an interesting um situation he has got a claim He's, by the way, an insurance guy, oddly enough, but he's got a claim that he's defending uh, in respect of a motor vehicle accident. And the opinion that he's looking for, really, the core issue that he asked me was, there's a, the plaintiff in that claim is getting disability benefits from two different disability policies at the same time. And he asked me, look, you know, she has already been getting benefits for over two years So she's crested over the magic two-year mark that we talk about on the show. In other words, both disability insurers have accepted, at least for a period of time, that this individual is not capable of working in any capacity. This person cannot do anything in the world for which she is suited by way of education, training, and experience, and by virtue of that has been approved for disability benefits beyond the own occupation period into what we call the any occupation period. And so the commentary that was needed in that particular case that I was reached out about was once you get past that two-year mark, is it guaranteed that you're going to get benefits until you turn 65? And I thought it was an interesting salvo for the top of the show because, you know, us lawyers, we're a fairly small group in in disability lawyers, I would say. Uh, We know one another quite well, and and it's clear that these different insurance companies know who the experts are are out there as well. And of course, we talk about this quite often, and it was an interesting conversation. I'll leave aside the technicalities around whether or not I can even 
be an expert witness and what all that mm-hmm. means. Uh, I, I'm not sure where we're going to go with that one, but I thought I would start the top of the show talking about that key issue. If you are in that situation where you've been approved for disability benefits past the two-year mark, can you kind of sit back and think, okay, I'm good. Most of these policies do pay until you're age 65, but do they actually pay? And the argument in this particular case that I was being told about was the insurance company or the lawyer uh, representing the claimant is saying neither insurance company is guaranteeing the payments. John, of course, they're not guaranteeing the payments. This could be five years, 10 years. I mean, I don't know the age of the claimant, but they're not going to concede to the fact that they're going to pay until age 65 unless really there is very clear information that this is a permanent disability perhaps one that is you know very well known to be progressive perhaps lead to uh, unfortunately mortality i wasn't hearing any of that and so insurers will absolutely continue to adjudicate that means they will continue to look at your disability claim month over month sometimes every two or three months but certainly they'll be looking for opportunities to first of all get an update find out where you're at from a health perspective figure out whether there's anything more that they can do to quote unquote, recover you or improve you. Because if you improve, then they will say you're well enough to work. And therefore, we don't have to continue paying the disability benefit. And so that adjudication can continue even if you crest over that two year own occupation period, unfortunately. However, here's what I will say, I think it becomes much tougher for the insurance company to after year three, year four of paying benefits, sometimes even after many years of paying benefits, to get before a judge or a court and say, you know what, after all that time, we could totally justify that we cut off this person's claim. I think that will be very, very tough for an insurance company to do unless there's some really, really solid evidence. And even then, John, because if a person's been disabled for that long, I suspect they have conditions that perhaps relapse and remit they get better with time and then perhaps get worse over time. And those changes can be really, really difficult to stabilize to a point where someone can say, look, I'm functional enough where I can actually work, whether at my old job or any job at that point. And so I often will say to people who've contacted me who say, look, tomorrow, you know, I I got benefits into the anti-occupation. How is it that they're cutting me off now? And I say to them, look, you know, they will do what they want to do because to them financially, that's better, right, John? No one's going to, no insurance company is going to be foolish enough to say, yeah, we're going to guarantee these benefits to your 65 years old because that will mean then dollars get attributed for a long, long period of time without any real vetting of your disability claim. That's not what insurance companies will do in any circumstance. And so if this sounds like you, if it sounds familiar, look, you do have options and you do have rights. And I think that you do absolutely have a better legal claim against the insurance company if you have been paid past the two-year mark, because the onus, the legal onus is on the insurance company to show that there is another job that you can do, even with all of your health issues, that they can say to a judge or a court, yep, this person has the basic training that they can go and do X job or X job. And those jobs will pay you roughly what you're getting your as your long-term disability benefit. That's usually the threshold for those benefits. So it's not a foregone conclusion. You know, I think that it can be really difficult to navigate, especially if you've been off for several years. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, look, 
If you're not sure and you're wondering what your rights could be in a situation like that, please don't hesitate to contact us. There's other disability lawyers out there too, most certainly. Uh, but it goes right back to what John said. You know, we are uh, really leaders in our field. And I think that in situations like that, you do want to trust someone who understands, look, how is this going to play itself out, both with the insurance company and their lawyers who know us as well, John, and how we deal with these kinds of claims going forward. You know, it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned there this in this particular case, or any case, I guess, if it's beyond the two-year mark and it's ongoing and this person really has not yet shown any signs of being able to get off benefit, and it could be years to come. They could be in their 50s looking at a policy, which we'll assume goes to 65. How, how likely is it for the insurance company to try to dangle a, uh, you know, a final one, one-time payment for the, uh, for the rest of your, your policy rather than go the entire length of until 65, you know, a payout? of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the example that I gave, the situation that I describe, it sounds like there's ongoing litigation. So if there's an ongoing legal claim for a motor vehicle claim in the background, for example, I'm not sure how likely an insurance company would be in terms of dealing with a lump sum. Not, Not to say that they wouldn't necessarily broach it, but I think that, you know, maybe a claimant in a situation like that may be resistant to that, not knowing, you know, what the future looks like and, you know, what's a good deal, what's not a good deal. Ultimately, whenever I see an insurance company broaching some kind of a lump sum settlement or a buyout without a lawyer involved, John, usually they're trying to do the math and the math is telling them, look, let's try and get this person off claim by giving them what looks to be a big lump sum settlement, but perhaps isn't truly reflective of the true value of that person's disability claim to age 65. And that's the key difference. That's the thing that we do so well, John, is that we leverage that with the insurance company in the context of a legal claim, because it's not just the benefits. Yes, there is a month to month. Absolutely. We look at that over the course of what's left on a policy. Like I think you said, you know, someone in their 50s, that's many years, over a decade. We look at that most certainly, but we also look at how was the insurance company treating this individual while they were on claim? What is this individual's doctor saying about how they're doing and where they're at from a health perspective? How realistic is it for this individual in year five, six, seven, 10 to actually go out and have some kind of partial work capacity that would be enough for the insurance company not to continue payments? And in a lot of ways, having ongoing disability benefits can be a beneficial for individuals. You know, it comes usually with a waiver of premiums for, say, things like life insurance. Perhaps you're still employed and on a leave of absence status, and you've got extended healthcare benefits with your employer. So you d- you really may want to continue getting those ongoing payments, but most people don't really know what to look for, or what to ask, and that's the trouble with you know it being outside of the legal context is that right. you don't really have someone who has your back, someone like me, someone like one, someone like one of my colleagues who can advise you. Look, these are the things you want to look at. Don't look at the big pool of money that looks like a really big pool of money because you got to consider factors A, B, C, and D. And mm-hmm. most importantly, where do you think you're going to be from a health perspective a year or two from now? Because I can tell you, if the insurance company is broaching this kind of a lump sum, they don't want to know what's happening in year two or three. They want you done. They want you one yeah. and done, which is why they're probably offering you two cents on the dollar, John. 
and it comes with strings. And we've talked about this before, you know, they're going to ask you to, to sign a release and, you know, to give away certain rights. And so yep. you really want to get some solid advice if the insurance company is coming to you with some kind of an offer without a lawyer involved. Opening salvo complete. We'll take a short break, give you some time to uh, to grab a pen or a phone and uh, write your questions down. Help at disabilityrights.ca, the email address we use and Tamar uses all the time, mydisabilityquestions.com. And the phone number, 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging in. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here, along with my pal Tamar Agopian, a partner, Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this wonderful country of ours. Feel free to reach out anytime to have a conversation with one of Tamar's team or Tamar herself. Uh, don't be bashful. Information is key. As much as you can get moving forward in the uh, disability law realm, the better. How do you do that? one 855 821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca through email. There's also mydisabilityquestions.com. Do exactly that. Ask your questions free and uh, of the anonymous nature so you can do that. Let's get on to uh, to Lorna's email. Lorna's been uh, waiting around, so we'll get to that. It says, hi, tomorrow. My husband has struggled with mental health issues for years. He hasn't been the same since he was in a bad car accident five years ago. Broke his back. He used to work as a technician at a large communications company. He hasn't worked in a while and got disability benefits. He was cut off in July 2020, and we never got a letter from the insurance company telling us why. He's still struggling, and his doctors support that he cannot work. Is it too late to start a legal claim for benefits? Really important question, Lorna. Thank you so much for reaching out. And so it's not too late, but it's making me quite nervous. Okay, so here's what I will say. In Ontario, you've got two years from the date, the first time the insurance company says no to you to start a legal claim. Just to simplify it, it's a two-year window. So if Lorna's husband's disability benefits stopped in July of 2020, then we're getting mighty close to that two-year mark. And so I do want to jump on that uh, you know, and start that legal claim sooner rather than later. The caveat, though, John, is that it sounds like they never actually received a decline letter. That's worrying because it doesn't make sense to me that there would not have been any communication to Lorna or her husband about the reason why those disability benefits stopped. So I'd want to know a little bit more information. Was there a phone call? Could there have been an email? Was there any communication at all before those disability benefits ended to explain why they were ending. Now, there is law out there that says if there's no clear or unequivocal decline, so something written by the insurance company or communicated by the insurance company clearly saying, this is why we're cutting you off, that it may not start, start that two-year clock from running. But I don't want to give that advice out here because I don't want people thinking, well, I, you know, I don't think they sent me the letter. I'm not sure if I got the letter. Anyway, you know, I still have lots of time to deal with this. No, you don't. You don't. Because in a situation like this, especially when Lorna's husband's been struggling for so long, the longer you wait, the longer it's going to take to yep. give us the opportunity to actually put the feet to the fire of the insurance company and say, hang on, what did you do here? Why would you have cut him off? Clearly, his doctors are still supporting that he's totally disabled. 
these benefits should have continued and in fact are, are likely owed for nearly two years now. That's a fairly you know, substantial amount of money, most likely, that Lorna and her husband may be risking and leaving on the table. I don't want to see that happening. So I really encourage individuals to do two big things. Number one, make sure you get everything from the insurance company in writing. I don't know how many times, John, that I give this advice. It's so basic. I think people feel comfortable with their adjusters at times, which is absolutely fine, by the way. It's just that comfort with that comes a little bit of relaxed nature in communications with the insurance company. And so they may say something to you over the phone and maybe you're not even really sure what, what was said to you. And then all of a sudden your your benefits have ended or something's happening on your claim and you're not sure. And they say, well, we talked to you about it. Well, there's no question as to what those conversations are. If you actually either write it down or send the insurance company an email or make the adjuster send you an email or a letter confirming what you talked about. Either way, you should know if you've had a conversation with the adjuster, you need to keep your own record potentially of what was discussed. The insurance company may or may not record the call. They say they do, but sometimes they don't. They may or may not do a call log or like a little memo onto the file about what the conversation was. But I can assure you that that's going to be a very one-sided memo, John. I mean, it's going to be what the adjuster thinks that they communicated with you and not necessarily what you probably absorbed from that conversation. So either way, I don't see a lot of downside to individuals keeping their own record of those communications, especially if important information is being communicated to you about your disability claim. So you really, really do want something in writing. So that's the main thing that I would say. And a close second is, if you're not sure, don't wait. You can initiate contact with your adjuster. If a month has gone by or two months have gone by and you haven't received your benefits, call the insurance company. Not only do you have contact information for your adjuster, but there is lots of customer service lines certainly that you can contact. All you'd need to quote is your policy number or your you know claim number. That should be somewhere in the communications with the insurance company. And you say, I haven't heard anything. I haven't received my funds. What's happening? Hello. Take some pro, you know, pro, pro, progressive steps, some forward steps, so that you can also document that you've made efforts with the insurance company to move that needle and understand what's happening. Either way, it's not too late for Lorna to start that legal claim, but I would say let's do it conservatively and think about it as that two-year window. And that's for a lawsuit, by the way. John, I want to clarify that. If one is asking about some kind of a recurrence claim, like another application to the insurance company, for example, which people can do, by the way, um, because I'm not sure her husband ended up going back to work and perhaps he went off again. I'm I'm not sure what the full picture is here. But if that's the case, the insurance policy itself will have some pretty strict timeframes around when you can make another application or another claim. And those timeframes are not two years. They're much, much less than that. And so, again... If you're not sure, you want to have a clear understanding and you want to not wait. Don't wait. There's no benefit to it in my mind because all you're losing is your monthly benefit potentially and the opportunity to engage someone who can help you. Someone like me uh, who can assist in a situation like this and actually move the needle with the insurance company by way of of a legal claim or some other means to find out what's going on. Great note, Lauren. I appreciate that. Uh, let me ask you a question, though. That it just kind of comes to mind. Can you get disability benefits if you have depression? A lot of people think if it's not a physical injury or uh, that that type of thing, and it doesn't qualify, right? Yeah, really, really good question too, John. And so, look, the disability policy will say 
you know, the test to qualify is, are you totally disabled by virtue of a sickness or an illness from performing the essential duties of your own occupation or any occupation? Mm -hmm. And certainly the last I checked, depression is certainly a sickness or an illness. It is a recognized uh, disability. It is in what we call the DSM uh, you know, qualifications. This is what psychiatrists and psychologists look at for evaluating mental health conditions and putting them on certain axes. It gets quite technical. But at the end of the day, there's a depression. There's actually other forms of depression as well, not just depression itself. It can come with somatic disorders and chronic pain and anxiety, a variety of other issues. Either way, John, if it's a sickness or an illness that's recognized, if it's considered by a doctor to have to be treated, and is preventing you from working, full stop, you should be qualifying for disability benefits. It's actually quite simple. And yet, we know insurance companies have used this definition as, frankly, as a sword as opposed to a shield. You know, they're really using it as a way to bat away otherwise legitimate disability claims, especially on the mental health front, which is incredibly frustrating because. Think about a situation where you do have depressive symptoms. We can only imagine what that will feel like for an individual. You know, I know it's tough out there to even find help and support for conditions like this. And then to have your insurance company, who's supposed to be the peace of mind policy, by the way, the disability insurer is meant to step up in a situation like this to pay you a monthly benefit so that you can focus on your health. And they say, no, you know what? We don't think you're sick enough, or we think that you know, you should be able to manage your mental health and still work. John, I see that so much. And it's not really the case when your own doctor or treatment provider is saying to you, you need to stop working. You need to focus on your health. Well, in my mind, if you've got that medical support, that that's what needs to happen, then that's where you need to make an application for disability benefits. And if you're declined, you need to continue to persist that claim against the insurance company. It's tough. Absolutely, yeah. it's tough, yep. but that's what it's there for, so that you can focus on your recovery and your health, and you're not compromising your situation uh, by virtue of just sort of not pursuing the insurance company, which I never like, like to let them off the hook, John. That's just me. Tamar speaks well, and she speaks the truth for sure. Reach out, have a conversation with uh, with Tamar, a member of her team, one 821 5900 is the way to do that help at disabilityrights.ca. Let's uh, let's start into another uh, another email anyway. This one from uh, Charlie. Charlie's up next. Says, hey, tomorrow I'm 60 and have worked as an account executive for nearly 40 years. I've been struggling with depression and anxiety since my son died last year of cancer. My wife got sick and I had to take care of her. Then I had a heart attack six months ago. Haven't worked since. I was approved for short-term disability benefits, but then got declined for long-term when I had to apply to a different insurance company. The long-term disability insurance company said that their doctor reviewed my claim and said because my job was sedentary, I could work. I just started seeing a psychologist. Does the insurance company have to consider this, and should I appeal? There's a lot to unpack here, Charlie, and thank you for reaching out and sharing the story with us and the situation with us. I mean, gosh, my, my heart goes out to you and your family. I can only imagine what a difficult year or two it has been. And then to be facing, like I just described, John, a situation where he needs to focus on his health and you've got the insurance company saying, no, we're not going to provide you with the monthly support that you're entitled to. That, that, By the way, he's probably paid premiums for. I mean, he's worked for 40 years, he tells us. And so what's happening here? Let, let's unpack this a bit. 
So when you apply for short-term disability benefits, some disability insurers will be the same insurer for short-term and long-term. So the idea being that the insurance company is going to evaluate your short-term claim. And then if they see that there's medical support, that your claim and health issues are persisting, they theoretically, they should be transitioning you from short-term to long-term. In some cases, that can happen seamlessly. In many others that I've seen, it doesn't happen that way. And where it becomes more problematic when going from short-term to long-term is if you've got actually two different insurers or two different adjusters dealing with those two claims. For whatever reason, maybe it's human nature. They look at it differently. You know, Sometimes the short-term disability benefits are actually paid by the employer. So the insurance company who's looking at it may not be having as much of a vested interest, if you get my meaning. In other words, the long-term disability benefits will be paid by the insurance company. So you know they're going to be looking at everything tooth and nail, combing through all the details and making sure they're satisfied that you meet the test. And that extra vetting comes with the financial. It's tied to the financial, right? So if, if they assess that you're totally disabled, they're going to have to start paying you themselves. And so there can be some bumps on the road for people when they're trying to go from short-term to long-term. Unfortunately, you know, you've been off for several months, you think you're good and that you can just focus on your health and then you get through another stumbling block. I think it's in a poor position for the disability insurer for the long term to be in a situation like this from what Charlie's describing. Because there's another element to it, which is this. I don't think it's appropriate, frankly, that they say to him because he's got a sedentary occupation that he should be able to work. What that means in layman's terms, John, is that they're saying your job is mostly sitting down. And because you're okay and you should be able to sit, you're good. But Charlie tells us he's got ongoing mental health conditions. He's struggled with that for a long time. He's seeing the psychologist. Absolutely, the insurance company should know about this. They absolutely need to know this information. And they should be evaluating the whole disability claim, physical and mental health, any combination of the two. Because the definition to qualify doesn't make a distinction. It just simply says, if your sickness or illness prevents you from working, we should be paying you your disability benefit. But look, John, I want to comment on a couple of other things. Maybe we pick up Charlie's email after our break. Absolutely. Stand by, Charlie. We are not done with you yet. And thank you so much for sending that email along for you as well. Anytime on or off the show, you can uh, you can do so. Help at disabilityrights.ca and call the number 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue. More Disability Law Show is coming up. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is here. Partner Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP. Reach out anytime to Tamara. She's worked for both. She works for the law firm. She's been on the dark side, working for the insurance company for many years. So she can very easily pull back the curtain and uh, educate you on all things having to do with disability claims, whether you've been asked to appeal or whether you're fighting with an insurance company, uh, straight up denial. Feel free to reach out and get some uh, some comfort, some satisfaction from Tamar and her team. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca, or if you prefer, mydisabilityquestions.com. We were, uh, we were talking about Charlie uh, before the break. Tamar, 60, been uh, an account executive 40 years. Short-term, good. Long-term, not so much. So he's dealing with this and asking if he should appeal as well, right? And we know how we think about that. Absolutely. And before I even talk about the appeal, which I have lots to say about as well, the other other thing that Charlie tells us, John, is that the insurance company's doctor reviewed his claim and they decided that he didn't meet the test of total disability. 
So I think it was worth just commenting on that part for our listeners, which is this. Insurance companies have a number of frontline adjusters who do you know, their review of these claims and they will look at the paperwork and they've got criteria and they will evaluate and you know, they'll make a decision. They're not doctors though, John. Nothing, nowhere near. Like they have no medical training whatsoever, yeah. would you believe? And so, you know, they often stumble on how to do the appropriate analysis as to whether or not certain conditions are actually in fact disabling or certain symptoms. And so to assist, quote unquote, with their analysis, they will lean on uh, a bunch of doctors that they've got on payroll, by the way, and they'll pay them to review disability files. So they'll send them the medical information and the non-medical information and have the doctor do what's called a paper review. So they're not meeting Charlie. They're not talking to Charlie. They're not even talking to Charlie's doctors. They're just looking at the paperwork that was submitted on his behalf And they're considering all the different elements. And perhaps when I say non-medical, perhaps they're looking at the fact that he's having to care for his wife, and perhaps they're looking at uh, potential grief related to his son's death and thinking there might be other reasons why this gentleman doesn't want to be working right now. And I see that a lot. So a doctor commenting on non-medical things as to why this person should be able to work. I can tell you the courts do not have any time for these kinds of paper reviews, John. They are not going to prefer these reviews over what your own doctors and practitioners are saying about your health. So you should know that going in, that there should be some level of confidence with the material and evidence that's going forth to the insurance company and how they're going to evaluate it. They're going to do what they're going to do. And they do this quite routinely with getting these paper reviews. But I know And I want our listeners to know that it's not going to hold up water. It's just not. When you've got an individual like Charlie who's worked for 40 years and finally he's at a point where he's like, gosh, I've had too much going on in my life. I cannot continue working. His doctors are supporting it. He should absolutely be getting disability benefits. Full stop. There's no question in my mind in his profile. And I think really he should be sending all of that information over to the insurance company. So the other element of this is he says, look, should I appeal? And he says, I don't think the insurance company, I think he said something about the insurance company doesn't have my psychologist's medical information or documentation. You know, I don't like appeals because frankly, it's nowhere in the disability policy. It's just something that's conceived of by insurance companies to sort of keep you in their process. And, you know, the one rare instance that I would say potentially it could be a worthwhile effort is if in fact they don't have all the medical information to consider. If there is something new or emerging, uh, new information that you think that they need to have or should have, then maybe reluctantly I'll give that it could be worthwhile to do an appeal. Frankly, I still think that insurance companies and adjusters most especially, sort of human nature, right? You make a decision and you kind of stick with that decision. So going through that appeal process, you're essentially saying to the adjuster, can you just look at this one more time? It's not persuasive unless there is in fact new information. And so maybe in Charlie's case, perhaps I would suggest it, John, but frankly, I'm a little concerned because I don't know if they have looked at everything, which includes his long work history, includes his family circumstances, all of those reasons together, physical and mental health will lead to an individual not being able to continue to work. And once they've made that decision, they are not deterred. The way that you deter the insurance company is starting a legal claim. We do it efficiently. It's the most effective way to get the insurance companies to come to the table and talk about it reasonably. 
it's not going to be the adjuster, John, that said no one time, two times, three times, however many times that you tried to appeal. It's going to be one of their lawyers and they know us too. And they know what I'm going to say about a situation like this and a profile like Charlie's. And they most definitely know that their paper review is not going to hold up. And so I'm going to be presenting all the medical information and we're going to be broaching a resolution with the insurance company, usually within eight to 10 months of being retained, John. I'm oversimplifying it because I want our listeners to know that, look, we do this day in and day out. This is what we do all the time and is very, very effective for our clients instead of going down this road of appealing after appeal. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. So when an insurance company declines an LTD claim, does that mean necessarily they just they shut the file down or are they, are they waiting for that appeal? <laughs> That's another really good question. And you know, it's interesting because as you said, I have worked for the dark side before and I've seen this, you know, they'll say we've declined your claim and we've closed your file. We'll yes. actually use those words in a decline letter, John, because you know, you and I reading it, maybe not me, but perhaps our listeners out there think, okay, they've closed my file. So so it's done. I'm done, right? Like there's yeah, there's no finished. other options. Yeah. And, and most people will get sort of a two or three page letter. And if you keep reading is when you see their analysis as to what they're saying to you about, quote unquote, closing your file or declining your claim, then they tell you you should appeal. Then they tell you about the limitation period. And if you want to assert your legal rights, no one's going to get to the end of that letter. John. They're just going to say, oh, it's closed. It's a deterrence, right? Like you expect, okay, there's nothing more to be done here. Insurance company is not going to be looking at it. So that's not the case. In fact, they are obligated, an insurance company is obligated if you submit further information on appeal to actually review that. And sometimes they give you a deadline, you know, give it to us in 30 days. If it's 31 days, it doesn't matter. They have to look at it. They are obligated. An insurance company has an ongoing obligation to adjudicate. So, you know, they may wait for that appeal, say, before updating like your employer, perhaps, or something like that. But your claim is still there. It's not quote unquote closed per se. Uh, but at the end of the day, you want to think about, look, what are my options right now? Do I want to keep dealing with the appeal process and the insurance company, or do I want to make this tomorrow's problem? Please make it my problem. That's what I'd like for people to do, or at the very least, have a conversation with me. Our consults are completely free. Happy to talk it through with you. Still some more time. We'll get to another email or two. In the meantime, here's how you reach out as we get into a, a short break. one 821 5900 Be fearless. Just pick up a phone call tomorrow on your team for a conversation. No charge. Just to get get uh, to get a feel of your of your situation. Help at disabilityrights.ca for quick, knowledgeable memos all about LTD. These can be educational and really helpful as well. That would be ltdfaq.ca. We'll continue. More Disability Law Show is on the way. Yeah, this indeed, the Disability Law Show Weekly here, and you want to uh, catch up with Tamar, ask her some questions of more of a uh, private nature, no problem, always standing by. Her team is amazing as well, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country, Sam Firu to Markin LLP, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca is that uh, email address. Let's get to uh, let's get to Maylin. Tamar says, uh, I suffer from fibromyalgia and was approved for LTD last year. My family doctor and specialist have been closely monitoring my condition to ensure my treatment is appropriate. In February, my insurance company sent me for an assessment and their doctor recommended different medication. When I spoke with my GP and specialist, they both said the medications recommended by the insurance doctor will help in the short term, but since they are narcotics, they're highly addictive and have serious side effects. 
and are not a long-term solution. So I'm following my doctor's advice and staying with the medications they recommend. But now my adjuster told me that my benefits are uh, getting cut off because I'm not quote-unquote compliant with recommended treatment. How can they force me to take the drugs that my doctors will say harm me? What is that? Yeah, awful, Malin. I'm I'm so sorry you've had to experience this. And I agree, they, they can't force you. The insurance camp, company can't force you to take medication that's not going to be compliant with treatment that's being recommended, by the way, from your own doctors. Always, always follow the medical advice of your own doctors. The insurance company, so, so let's unpack this a bit, John. She describes that she was sent for an assessment. So you're on claim with the disability insurance company. They're looking at all your medical information and perhaps they're not uh, you know, fully persuaded or they want to have someone have you assessed. So they may have done a paper review, as I described in our prior segment, or perhaps they will do what looks like they've done in Maylin's situation, which is to actually set you up with an independent medical assessment. So you have to attend, usually in person. You meet with their expert, their doctor. They will go through and do an assessment, depending on whether it's physical or mental health, sounds in Maitland's situation that probably it was a physical assessment, and they will prepare a fairly detailed report for the insurance company. And in that, they have to address certain key questions. One of them is, what's the diagnosis? One of them is, is you know what's the current treatment? And the third most closely looked at is, is the treatment that this individual getting appropriate? What else would you recommend, fair doctor, that we're paying you thousands mm-hmm. of dollars to give us an opinion on? <laughs> and so, unfortunately, we see this a lot with chronic pain cases and fibromyalgia cases, John, because the treatment is not always clear. Different doctors advise different courses of treatment. And I frankly uh, tend to agree with Malin's doctors that you don't really want to go down the road of narcotics if you can avoid it. And so, what does the insurance company do in a situation like that? Well, Uh, obviously it serves their best interest to have you medicated and get you back to work because if that's what's happening, they don't have to pay the disability benefit. But this is where the interests divide, right? This is why I'm saying it's much more important to follow your own medical advice. And guess what? The courts have agreed with this too, John. What they look at is, is it reasonable? Quote unquote, is the treatment recommendation reasonable? Is it known as appropriate treatment in the medical community? And if so, if it's reasonable for Malin to follow her own medical advice, as opposed to what's being proposed by the insurance company's doctor, then it will be preferred over what the insurance company is assessing. But insurance companies will look at what their policy says. And in their policies, there is a provision that says, if you're not abiding by quote unquote, appropriate treatment, and we think there's treatment that you need to get. And if you're not doing it or not getting it, we have a basis to cut off your claim. And unfortunately, that's what it seems like is happening in a situation like May Lynn's. Quite unfairly, may I add, because nobody is saying that she's not still totally disabled. They are. The whole argument is whether or not she has appropriate treatment. And the thing that gets me the most, John, is that I know for a fact, doing some employment law work as well, that there's employers as well who won't let you come to work if you're taking narcotic medication. There's drug and alcohol policies that, you know, can't be abided by. And so I got to wonder, 
because I know disability insurers will keep the employer updated loosely at a high level kind of thing. But I got to wonder, you know, what happens in a situation like that if their recommendation is this claimant is able to go back to work, but needs to be jacked up on, on pain meds in order to do so? It's not appropriate. And frankly, it's not sustainable because even if there's a short-term relief that Malin has with taking these stronger medications, what happens when she gets back to work and it, and she stops taking that medication or her health continues to prevent her from working? Guess what? She's going to make a recurrence claim to the insurance company. At least that's what I'd be avi- advising. And so rushing back to work and complying with treatment that's not reasonable, that's going to harm you is a recipe for disaster. But the only person that suffers in a situation like that is May Lynn, John, not the insurance company. They don't care. They don't care whatsoever. And so look, I think my first advice would be to ensure that May Lynn has this opinion, this advice that she's getting from her own treatment providers written out in a medical report and sent that over to the insurance company. If they have that, they have to weigh that with what their own assessment and expert is saying about appropriate treatment. You can challenge it that way. If that information is available, though, and the insurance company is still going ahead to decline, then I think this screams out a legal claim. I think, the, frankly, I know that the insurance company's lawyers will see it in similar ways, at the very least, that I've done the analysis and really think about, look, someone with fibromyalgia, somewhat of a progressive condition, is this sustainable for stable work to be functional enough to work? Mm-hmm. And that really is what it comes down to. And I think probably the insurance company is grappling with, look, how long are we going to have her on claim if we can't find a quick fix? And the quick fix is not reasonable if it's going to harm your health. Last minute of the show, I'll give it to you. And that is what kind of impact have you seen over the last uh, while with COVID-19? Is it, and does that continue to be a uh, an issue with disability claims? Yeah, it is an issue, John, because of access to treatment. I think that's the main impact that I'm seeing is that I've got lots of clients who have not been able to see practitioners as regularly or get the treatment as regularly. And much like I talked about in Malin's situation, you know, there is provisions in the policy that says you got to get appropriate treatment. And so I'm scratching my head. Insurance companies seem to take a really vigorous approach on this, unfairly, may I add, because we know we've been subject to a number of shutdowns the last two years. And those shutdowns have included you know, therapy clinics, in-person treatments, uh, injections for pain medication, family doctors, in fact. And so I think that's a problem for disability insurers. Um, and I think they've taken the wrong path, as they often do, in adjudicating claims like this. It's not the fault of the claimant. And they cannot be faulted for the fact that they're still unwell and not being able to access that treatment. I think the injustice of that will fall in favor of claimants as opposed to insurance companies, full stop. And so, you know, hopefully things improve. It sounds like we, we might be, you know, sort of going over a crest. But at the end of the day, it shouldn't be up to the disability claimant to have to bear the brunt of the insurance company's vigorous adjudication on appropriate treatment. And with that, we are done for another show. Appreciate you chiming in with all your emails and texts. And otherwise, you want to do so now that we're uh, we're through. You can. Here it is. Help at disabilityrights.ca through email. The website, mydisabilityquestions.com or ltdfaq.ca. And finally, the phone number one more time, one 855 821-5900, and we will talk to you again and hope you join us for the next edition of the Disability Law Show. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.